Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Construction Prediction Podcast. I'm your host, Easy. This is episode 483. I didn't believe it when I posted it. Uh, Abe, how you doing, buddy? We're joined by the full the full cast today, but you're you're a little under the weather. I wanted to check in with you first. Yeah, I'm uh, about a little bit of a cold. Picked up over the weekend, but uh, thanks to the power of uh, hashtag not sponsored. Luden's cough drops, Luden's cherry <laughs> could be great, sponsored. <laughs> great pecking cough drop. Uh, I'll be able to make it through. I thought it'd be fine. You know, it, it's it's funny. Like as somebody that's wife is a teacher, uh, there there are two jobs that I'm quite sure get everybody around them sick, and then also get sick pretty often. And that is uh, elementary school teacher and any human that works at a bank. Money's disgusting. What? But the hospitals is an honorary shout out too. No, I actually would guess that you were more likely to get sick at like a bank or a school than a hospital. Um, mostly because like there's like rules of cleanliness that like, and there there a lot of it's forced upon at this point at a hospital. Um, but like people be walking into banks sick as f with their dirty money. It's gross. Money yeah, is so gross. Their blood money from all the ragavans they bought. Mason Clark, how are you doing, buddy? <laughs> doing pretty good. Ready to go to the gym after this. Boom, boom. Then I'm then I'm done. I get to relax, put my cube together. I've got you can't quite you actually you can kind of see on the video podcast here. There's a corner calling right here. I've got like ten more cards to pull out, and then the cube is done. Gotta find these ten shock lands and I'm, I'm it's it's Jover. I have it ready, which is great. I'm excited to play this weekend. How many fetch lands so. are in your cube? Zero. Mm, interesting, interesting. Well, if you want to talk about things like the fetch lands in Cube, uh, you could you could maybe join the, the Discord. Maybe we we'll talk about that a little bit. A little, maybe I'll question maybe somebody's Cube in there. If you want to do that, can I have a shout out real quick. Oh yeah, all right, Cube real quick. Somehow Dom Harvey did a two-hour solo podcast about Cube from CubeCon. We love Dominaria's judgment. We love Dom. Some unbelievable. I would he would he I, I turned it on at the gym expecting a normal Dominaria's judgment, and he's like, It's just me this week. And I looked at the timer, saw two hours, thought there's no way. Very enjoyable, very informative too. If you like cube stuff, I thought it was great. I Mason it blew my solo, mind. Mason solo it was a two hour lecture. Yeah, it, it was a two hour lecture about cube, cube philosophy, magic design, and his experience at CubeCon. It's weird that the guy that has like the thirty-eight thousand-page amulet article would also make a solo two-hour podcast. It it just goes to show you can make any content you want if you have a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what he said. It was just so British. <laughs> it just sounded so nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, we could be better if we had British accents on the show. Fortunately, we're all dirty, gross Americans. Um, that being said. This episode is about always improving to the point where we're not even going to do the always improving segment. Because this week, we're diving into improving. We're all going to talk about things that we've been working on uh, a lot deeper than we normally do. You know, we all talk about the things that we've done to be improving, but we're going to dive deep into those. Before we do that, as I mentioned, if you want to join the Discord, uh, you know, just join Patty B. Patty B. MTG, we mentioned him last week, kind of off the cuff, but he gets his shout out. 
Petty B joined the uh, the Discord as a patron of five dollars or more. If you're watching live, you probably are a patron of the show. That's another benefit. Uh, you know, bonus episodes. There's tons of things that you can do. Head on over to patreoncom ccmtg. The show will always be free. But you know what? Joining a Discord with this Discord Discord with the three of us, you know, that's that's worth way more than we charge. Mason smile. I love it. I, I think you, I think you nailed that one. I nailed it. I you did it. Hashtag you always it. promoting. Uh, right. Let's go into the training rounds. Diving into improving. Mason, what is this episode? Yeah, so this episode is almost like the Black Mirror anthology episode of the CCMTG universe, where we're each going to be going over sort of an always improving segment. Uh, that's a little bit bigger and flushed out. And, you know, this is really sparked by feedback from you, the listeners. You know, if you've ever told me uh, that you'd like the show in person, I probably said, hey, can I ask you an awkward question of what's your favorite part? And you said, uh, and then you told me what you thought after you thought about it a little bit. And the thing I get the most is the always improving segment. And some always improving segments are kind of short, sweet, to the point. Not everything is kind of a Goliath stuff. But we're all kind of at a point where it's kind of perfect to have a big always improving segment. And, you know, sometimes if you listen to the show, right, we don't get to the main topic till 20, 30 minutes into the episode. Definitely the exception more than the norm. But in the theme of that, it's like, well, instead of trying to, like, rush through this or have that, you know, be an episode. I'm sorry, so not having it be an episode. Let's just have it be an episode. Because some of these things, too, are stuff that are maybe really good topics for 15, 20 minutes. And we could wait to do one maybe when it's just the two of us here. Or we can do this now, have us all here, and sort of knock it out, especially when we're in this sort of weird flux time right now with Magic. So... With that in mind, I think I'll start off here with always improving slash our segment, and uh, I'll start talking about mine, and you know we'll go from there. So, a couple of weeks ago in uh, coaching, I was having this thought, and I was thinking a lot about kind of like what is going on between me and the average coaching person, because my first realization was is that I would say about you know seventy five eighty percent of the time in coaching, me and the person that I'm coaching have the same line, right? Like we come to the same conclusion. Uh, and there's obviously some differences and stuff. And sometimes, you know, like they might not have a well thought out reason and it is multiple choice, et cetera. But I was thinking, what is the difference? Cause clearly there's some delineating factor between me and them. And there might be some other stuff going on like fundamentals, et cetera. But what, what is going on if we're coming to the same place a lot of the time? And the thing that I first noticed when I was thinking about it was, well, they're getting there really quickly. And I would notice this where I would say, often say in coaching where you'd be like, excuse me, give me a second, or sorry, I was thinking through the line for a second there after they gave their answer. And what I thought at first was, it's like, okay, well, maybe I'm just being more methodical about it, right? Maybe I'm thinking a little bit more, giving it a bit more time. And so what's happening is it's because I'm thinking more, I miss some less of those small details, or I find some bigger picture line or something like that. And this snowballs over the course of the game of making a bunch of, you know, micro mistakes or death by a thousand cuts. And I think there's something to that. I think that's fairly true. But after reflecting more, I started to realize, well, why are they making their choices so quickly? You know, what is happening? And that's when I landed on the conclusion of heuristics and uh, thinking about it and talking to people and listening to what they're saying and really kind of diving into it. I realized that a bunch of players are using heuristics to drive their plays and to sort of guide them. And they're leaning on them in a way that is much more like it is a map than it is, or a compass than it is a tiebreaker. And what I mean by that is when I would talk to players or listen to them or ask them why they did their play, 
they would give me these heuristic based answers that weren't uh, having any context of the game we're currently at. And, you know, before we go forward, I, I think there are some really good heuristics. I think heuristics can be helpful, but when you blindly follow something like that and you don't be an active participant in the game, then you're really going to, you know, struggle and have a hard time moving forward in the match and moving forward in magic because you're not really thinking about what's at hand and you're not letting those situations sort of dictate what's going on, right? A sort of great example of this might be something like, let's say you're playing against Yawgmoth, you know, and your opponent mulligans to four and they play an ignoble hierarch. Well, you know, if you have a dreadboard type card in hand, you have an answer to Grist already and you have like a fatal push as well. You know, you have, I guess, Molten Collapse is the new one. Normally, heuristics would say you push the bird, you know, you bolt the bird, you get rid of it. But if your opponent's on that many of resources, you might actually want to save it and just fight over the key cards, right? Inversely, it might just be correct to bolt the bird, right? Like maybe they just off a mana. And what's happening is I think a lot of times the people I'm coaching and just magic players in general, as I kind of look and watch and think about what the difference is between sort of the really strong players I know and just the strong players or just the average person, is that the really strong players are taking each scenario sort of as its own individual instance and they are kind of figuring out what it is in that moment and then they are you know thinking about what they would do from there and sometimes they use heuristics as a tiebreaker or something to kind of you know uh tip the scales one direction or the other if it's really close you know because heuristics can be helpful but they're not leaning on them as immediate things and that is why we're getting a lot of the same answers is because you know sometimes especially good heuristics like bolt the bird typically end up being right so often that you know it's fine if you just default to that every single time, but it will be wrong some percent of the time. And that was kind of the big one. So I want to kind of open up to YouTube because I know I just spent a lot of time talking. I want to talk about some stuff that might help with this, um, but I don't want to just spend the whole time talking. So any you know, thoughts or anything like that? I have a, I have a lot of thoughts and, you know, I, I actually thought about yours a lot as we were coming up with the show and, and knowing where you were going to come from. And I think, I think about the, the players that, I play a lot of magic with, right? And you, I think that I have two players that I play with a lot that I have two um, extremes. And Matt Kling plays a lot by heuristics by playing a ton of magic. And then you've got Quentin Pierce who plays who who plays a ton of magic, but he does it to gain knowledge on situations and they're they, when they play together it's it's really cool to like listen to them talk and kind of listening to you talk there I, the way that i view heuristics and honestly like the actual first time i heard this word was like it was probably like episode 180 something of limited resources when lsv brought it to the forefront of the magic community on that episode i, I don't remember the specific episode but um, I remember thinking like, this is really cool, but the way that I've always viewed it is like, here are the things that are usually right that you can shortcut through your games because of, and then here are the situations that usually come up that are more complicated that once you learn them a bunch, maybe it can make you play a little bit faster. But that's how I've used heuristics. It's more of a like, a shortcut for things that come up a lot rather than a like both the bird is like a, a good example it's probably one that we'll use a lot but like yeah if you like have a fatal push and they have an elf 
in Pioneer, you should probably Fatal Push. Um, because the thing is, is let's say you Fatal Push and Thoughtseize, and you Thoughtseize them instead, and you're like, well, I, Fatal Push has more value later. Well, guess what? What happens is you've, you've Thoughtseize them, they have three three drops, it didn't actually matter which one you took, and now you're really far behind. So that's why that heuristic is right such a high percentage of the time in a situation like that. Or you have, uh, you know, it, it's pretty often in like ramp decks where, you know, the heuristic is like, okay, play a bridge spell, play a ramp spell, play a ramp spell, play a threat, right? Um, and then when you break those heuristics and when you want to do things like that, it like the, the opportunities, I guess, to get good with a ramp deck, like even the standard ramp deck we have now, that's like this five color ramp deck. The opportunities that you have to break server, break heuristics, are actually the opportunities that you're going to gain win percentage in that deck. Everybody expects the, you know, soon they're going to expect literal rampant growth into, you know, explosive vegetation. I think that that will actually become a norm a little bit in that deck. And the opportunities where you can be like, okay, are there four drops that I can play that break serve? Or are there, you know, different things that I can do with, um, with, Territorial Stomper with vehicles. Like, those are the things where the deck will become more interesting now because everyone will now start to have specific patterns. And we had it with one drop, three drop, five drop in standard. We had it with two drop, four drop, six drop in standard with, you know, Rampant Growth, Sylvan Simulacrum, Titan. Uh, we had it with Birds, Cultivate, or it wasn't actually Cultivate. It was actually one drop, three drop pod stuff, but... Uh, just that type of stuff, the opportunities to learn and the opportunities to uh, gain percentages come from when, not not in the games that everybody could win, right? They come from the games that you actually have to think to win a game. That, that's kind of my thought on, on this topic. Yeah, I think um, like a really, really big kernel of wisdom in there that you touched on was was just in how like LSV presented it when you first started thinking about it in terms of heuristics and how I think that a lot of Magic players kind of lost sight of that since then, where heuristics are things you use to be able to offload processing of decisions you're going to make um, like through games into already being answered, right? You're making these shortcuts, so you have good shortcuts um, to follow so that you can use your mental processing elsewhere. I think a lot of players um, especially ones who go from a point of, okay, I don't really know what I'm doing to, all right, I'm going to play a lot and try to figure it out. They develop a lot of good heuristics about what the plays to make are or how to play, you know, a really strong deck um, pretty well and not make a lot of big mistakes and make kind of like the right decisions and know roughly what things should look like. And that gets you, you know, like 75 to 8% of the way there. But if that's the only way you're playing, right, you'll win a good amount of your matches. But in a tournament, it's about winning a set of matches that you're playing over one period of short period of time, right? And that means that you really have to be paying attention to making the best decisions possible in front of you and playing the games in front of you for that tournament to have a success in that in a way that you wouldn't have just by trying to be like, you know, trophy leader on Magic Online or, um, you know, even just building up a play point bankroll on, on Magic Online by just jamming leagues, right? You can play a bunch of not super engaged or super involved magic and still win a lot when you play a good deck. 
but that hinders you. And if all you're ever doing with your heuristics are establishing these ways to avoid thinking during magic and not balancing that out by introducing right that that extra brain power you've now saved by shortcutting if you're not using that to then include okay what is it i'm now using the brain power freed up to process all you're doing for yourself is making it so that you're not working as hard to play average abc magic and average abc magic is fine and good but if you really want to right succeed and level up you need to push yourself to be beyond that and if you're not doing that and you're only ever making conventional wisdom plays and you're not trying to evaluate where you are in a game uh, and you're not using all of the information that you're able to take in um, because you knew already what your first three land drops would look like or what the important color in your deck to double up on is or you know what kind of hands you can and can't keep against certain decks and what you're looking for in your opener and um, you know, all these things that normally if you were to just process them raw every time would completely exhaust you and take a bunch of time. Um, you're not actually using heuristics to much of your advantage. You're, you might even win more in an untimed world of like just making every decision from a place of not actually thinking of it. And I think that's kind of like a really big tension that exists, especially in tournament magic where your brain power and your ability to process things is a finite resource um, you know, like we are human and people get tired when they think about things and it, it expends, you know, energy to do so, but making sure that you're doing things that leverage the brain power you do have and make sure you have it for the situations where you need it. That's where you're going to be able to play at your A game in order to do that with heuristics as a tool. But I, I think much to what, like your observation, Mason, I think a lot of players, they get to the point of understanding the conventional wisdom and they're like, okay, that's good. That's what I should be doing. Because that's what you tell yourself you're supposed to be doing for a long time. You're like, okay, I, how do I get to the point where I'm not making mistakes? I'm just playing, you know, I'm playing well and I'm making good decisions. And if you never get to a point where you stop and say, okay, what if this is serving me? And what if this is, you know, stopping me from engaging mentally in my games on a, on a deeper level or on the deepest level I can, then you stop pushing yourself to really improve. And I think that's like really you know, unsurprising to me that people who come, you know, ready for coaching, ready to take that next step, you're finding that a lot of them have maybe this very, even though they make, you know, the same play as you, like you said, like 75% of the time, because 75% of the time, the obvious play is, is the right play when you think about it like that, right? The, the play, it's the play that's right most of the time. That's why it's a good heuristic. But if you don't, right, if that's, you're missing out on 25% of the time where it's the wrong play or the, what typically feels like the second best play is actually better because you don't engage with it. And I think that's like, you know, I've thought about that a lot too. I know we've talked about it you know, not every week, but maybe the last two or three shows uh, we've mentioned this at least once, but I think that's because there really is a, a good kernel here that I want to make sure that we get to listeners because, you know, it's, if you're leveling up and if you're playing tournament magic, you really got to make sure that you're, developing yourself to play good tournament magic and heuristics are a tool but i think people often use them more as a resource than as uh like of like okay this is the encyclopedia of plays i can make rather than you know this is the this is the encyclopedia of shortcuts i can take so that in round nine of today i have a little bit more brain power to think things through or even in on turn nine of this game i can think things through a little better because my turns one to three were already played out
I think that one thing that I want to hit on that you just hit on that I, I, I think, well, let me say it this way. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, does this apply to me? If you consider yourself a control player or a ramp player or a aggro player or any of those things, the reason that you feel that way is because you've built up a stockpile of heuristics for your deck that gives you an advantage in X number of situations, right? When Abe talks about, like, the mulligan decisions, the, you know, what to do in X or Y situation and all of these things, the, there's a reason that I've talked a lot about, like, why I think that control and ramp are, like, easier decks to play. And it's because you can build up those heuristics really easily. And if you're going to break... then the games that you win, right, are the games where you break those heuristics and you understand what's important on key turns. Um, and I, I think that if you're you're listening to this, you're like, oh, well, I, that, this doesn't apply to me. If you consider yourself a type of player and only that type of player, it, it definitely applies to you. I just wanted to call that out. I think it applies to most players. Yeah, that's like, probably true. I would guess it applies to you two and me as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just so we're all clear. Okay. I, I, just yeah, wanted, like, I wanted to highlight, like, the... Sometimes I think it's easy to like think like, oh, I don't have this problem. And I wanted to highlight sure. like an obvious situation where this is true. Sure. I I would say this. Um a lot of times when I see players like I think it's a great example. Um I guess not actually a great example because I can't remember all the details. Basically, I watched Corey Baumeister make a heuristic driven play uh, at one of the apexes we were both at, and I talked to him about it afterwards. And I was, he like, you know, basically said like, oh, like that's typically the thing in the spot for like these reasons or whatever. And I was like, yeah, but your opponent did why or whatever, you know? And I was like, and if they did that, it meant they didn't have the card that normally this plays around because they would just slam it. And he goes, great point, you know, and like gives me the finger gun. And that's like a spot where it's like, even people like him or whatever, right. Or like us, you know, depending on where, however you want to put people on pedestal, et cetera. Like this happens to everyone and it's an important thing to just be aware of and you know like i will slip up and i will make plays that are driven off heuristics especially when like time happens and i think that like you know one of the good things about heuristics you know is like it helps with the mental load like y'all talked about it and for its worth i didn't get a chance to say it but i love everything y'all said uh, but like it helps with the time and also like when there's 10 minutes on the clock and you need to play game three you do not have the same amount of time you do as when you have 50 minutes on the clock right and like you can take that extra two or three seconds the time you know you've used your time already. It's time to like really hone in and finish the match at hand. So with that in mind, it's like, okay, I need to play quicker, which means having heuristics and building up and understanding these sort of things does matter. And if you do any coaching with me or have listened to this podcast, you know that I don't really care about like winning and losing. What I care about is like what matters in the matchup, kind of how do these cards line up? How does this deck line up against this deck? How do you play these cards against each other, right? Sort of what matters in the matchups that I care about which in a lot of ways is just building up a heuristic, right? I'm asking you sort of what are the key things that seem to be coming up to these key points because I want to have the cards work so that I can make informed decisions from that, right? So a lot of the ways that I even prepare for tournaments, you could argue are like heuristic driven or whatever. But it is just very important to understand that like when you are not, as Abe said it, using like your active brain or whatever, you're just shortcutting everything, then you're not really playing as much. And you're gonna set you're gonna set yourself up for more failure in the really hard spots, right? The easy lines where everything's going well, you're gonna do fine. But when it gets tough, 
gets nitty gritty, you're going to lose. Or your opponent, who's you know maybe actively thinking it's going to you know win that five percent of games that you know even though they were a heavy favorite to lose, they kind of sneak out because you were out of high and didn't play around X or Y card. Uh, the really quickly here, if I don't want to spend too much more time on mine, I wanted to have some quick actual things to try and help you all with this because I understand that like this is kind of a big thing that's like wave our fingers at you, no, 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 but like we didn't really not like a normal episode, so I wouldn't have a brief version of that really quickly here. The first is, it's okay if you get overwhelmed. Do your best not to be. It can be overwhelming when you start thinking about a lot of things and coming from it. I will say that ideally when you're playing Magic, you should be thinking about the whole game the whole time, and it'll be like a running or rolling tally. So this won't be as big of a deal when you're actually playing versus jumping into a scenario or jumping into a game, right? This is why so often in events, people will say in team tournaments, like, I don't help my teammates unless they specifically don't know or ask because they didn't have the full context if I jumped into a game. So think about those things. It's okay. But do your best to kind of think through, like, what's happened in this game? What makes sense? You know, if they had this card that I'm playing around, would they have played it earlier? Does that make sense? Should I sort of call their bluff right? Or should I keep respecting it, et cetera? Just think about each individual instance as its own thing and try and think through it. And it doesn't have to be 10, 15 seconds for every single play. It can just be a little bit of thought, you know, and you can get the ball started there and just, you know, even think about, you know, work on one match at a time, really doing it like that, and then move on to the next, right? And we don't, you know, for its worth, like, I understand what I'm saying. I'm painting with a, a wide brush here, right? And I'm saying never really think. But for stuff like you're going to upkeep ultimate price to children so you don't die to the shielded trigger, you don't need to stop and think, like, is this the right scenario? Like, you can just kill the shielded, you know? Like, for the really obvious things you have to do if you're going to win the game, that's fine. But when you find yourself, I would say this, if you find yourself making a play and you can't say, why I made that play or what was going on or that you didn't think about that play, then I think you're doing it wrong. And that's a good time to check yourself before you wreck yourself. I love it. Uh, I, I guess I'll go next. Uh, my topic this week is something that I talked about, I think two weeks ago that I have tried and been focusing on a little bit more and that's um, playing with intent. And I want to talk about a few things as we kind of go through this. The first one is intent and discipline, because uh, one of the things that I really liked is what Abe said. I think Mason actually joined in too. I think both of you kind of talked about intent during that. I was improving segment and playing with intent, um, and I, I think that there there is a difference between discipline, which is you know not not going into autopilot. And then intent, which to me is like, okay, now that we're not in autopilot, let's actually engage in the game in a meaningful, real real way. And I think that both things are important and that I had to get back to playing with discipline in order to get to playing with intent. Uh, and I, I think that's important. I think that recognizing that I wasn't even disciplined enough to play with intent was a pretty big problem for me. Uh, when when playing Masters of Magic. And a, a reason is because I think that a lack of discipline comes when you're playing Masters of Magic where you're able to skill diff your opponent a lot. Where you don't have to focus on intent. You don't have to focus on discipline. You can flowchart it. You can rely on heuristics like Mason said. And you can kind of just go through the motions and keep yourself at a place where you're happy. 
for me and kind of where I'm at in magic, I, I posted this in the discord. I'm kind of shifting my magic focus. Um, right now, the things that I need to work on is uh, MTGO um, and kind of a return to form of really disciplined magic. And when I say MTGO, this weekend um, I played the challenge uh, and my son was playing Fall Guys behind me. One time he's trying to talk to other people on the Discord while I'm playing magic. Um, and they can't hear him, so I'm like trying to talk for him, and I don't force a negation something. I need a force of negation. Like I click through it. Another time he's screaming while playing Fall Guys happily, and I just it's so loud like I can't think, and I have a common I have a commandeer in hand that I don't pitch. Or I don't sorry, I don't counter a commandeer that I had a counter spell for. And it, it's it's so funny because like in a paper magic tournament I would never have this problem like I, there's just not a time where like I would not I, I'm in that situation so much I I have my pen my notepad or whatever my deck box I have the way that I shuffle I have all these these things that I do that I'm just in this mode and as I kind of shift the way that I play magic. To not focus on the little tiny bits of, like, the things that I focused on for a long time with Paper Magic, but focus on things that are important to winning larger matches of Magic holistically. Um, I, that, that return to form and that, that belief that, like, MTGO is the level of competition that I need to get to where I want to go, it, it's really important. And I think once I've done that... Um, I think working on intent is next, whether that's pre-tournament, whether that's looking at deck lists. Um, I've gotten a lot better at studying recently, um, to the point where I've played a Shieldrid <laughs> Rhino's deck multiple times now, um, where I believe like it has a good position in the metagame. Uh, mulligan decisions and in-game decisions are something that I, I'm really good at, uh, outside of like those moments where I slip. And where those moments where intent disappears and that discipline isn't there. And that's why I'm working on it so hard. Um, you know, I, I've seen results in my my green-red vehicles testing where it's Alicia watching Lion King behind me instead of Maxwell, you know, watching while playing Fall Guys and, like, the differences in there. I, I think that the reason this is important for me is that I have... I don't want us to become lazy, um, but in some respects it is that. Like, it's so easy to be like, oh, I don't know, like I'm winning 80% of these matches on Arena for this. Like, that'll obviously translate. Or like, I'm top baiting all of these RCUs, that'll translate. Rather than thinking like, okay, well, what happened in those matches? What happened? What, what made your decisions? And I think back to like the... Um, the finals of the RCQ that I lost with Gruul Vehicles, where I kept the one-lander, because I was like, well, if I draw land, like, this game is over, and I'm going to win the tournament because I'm up a game. But, like, if I had just had a disciplined mulligan decision, that wouldn't have happened. And it comes from those times where you put yourself in positions to get lucky because it doesn't matter. Because you didn't put yourself in the situation where it did matter enough times. So that's that's kind of mine. 
Uh, I kind of like went off there. So, uh, Abe, any any thoughts or feelings on that? I just want to say that I I kind of love the way that you just put that at the end as far as like, you know, putting yourself in the spot where like you're making decisions where you need to get lucky because you don't feel like you need the discipline to um, to have the success you want or like, you know, you maybe are out of practice of making sure you're making decisions with the discipline because you don't. Um, you know, you don't often have to, you know, rehearse that uh, that kind of like consistent, you know, I'm going to make the right decision all the time and like evaluate everything kind of mindset. Um, be it because most of the time you end up playing is when you're also on daddy duty and have like a million other things going on. So it's hard for you to get that time to focus and really practice doing that with intent um, or otherwise. But I always think about um, kind of the... You know, it's like if you play well and the cards fall the right way, right? Like if, you, if you're if you playing well, that's the luckiest you can be because you'll be able to take advantage of every time you do get lucky. That like there really is a value to being disciplined, even if sometimes being disciplined is trying to get lucky. Um, that it's really about, you know, constantly making those calculations. And if, even the, those momentary lapses, trying to eliminate those. Um, something I talk about, recently with um, uh, a local player at an RCQ was about um, concept of like A game, B game, and C game that I got from this book on poker. I think it's called Elements of Poker. Really like a free uh, ebook that my friend AJ told me to read. We talked about how like everyone has an A game where they play like they're playing the best they can. You know, like they're making all the right decisions. Everything's coming up. Um, they're super on top of it. They're super in. Everyone has an A game. B game about what you play normally, you know, you're not super on, but you're playing fine, and then there's your C game, which is like your tilt game. If you're playing poker, like, you know, nothing's coming up right, you're frustrated, um, you're out of it. And really, when you're evaluating kind of a, in his mind, he's talking about poker players. Like, when you're talking about a poker player, it's important to know where all three games lie because someone who has a bad C game and doesn't have the ability to have that self discipline to say, okay, I'm frustrated. I'm either not making good decisions, so I need to lay down this hand right now before I get into a pot that I'm going to lose too much money in. Or, you know, like, you know, if you're a magic player and just like, I'm frustrated right now, how am I going to take the time to recenter myself rather than just say like, oh, like, do you know that you are going to tend to be like, oh my God, this hand's terrible, so I need to mulligan, even though maybe it was a fine hand. Or, you know, you're going to keep hands that are risky because you feel like the only thing that can go wrong is that you're going to, right, like, how clear can you continue to make decisions? It's kind of a, a level of your C game. And I think it sounds like you're really trying to work on lifting, right? You know, your A game is there and can be there, right? When you're playing with discipline and intent, it's going to be there. Um, and you'll, you'll feel happy that you're playing and you'll be successful. Your B game, it sounds like is, you know, has some distractions, but your C game, um, you know, can really come out in the times where you're not able to, uh, to focus a lot. And it sounds like you're trying to, kind of move needle from less time playing not as well as you could into more time playing as well as you normally do and maybe towards your best. And I think that's just a really, really good thing to be working on for a lot of people. If you're someone who feels like you, you know, I've had people in coaching who've said like, oh, it's like the classic me is that I start 3-0 and then I lose the next three rounds, my sixth round event and like don't make top eight. You know, it's like, well, is there something deeper in there? This is a question I always ask is like, you know, how do you feel 
when you're 3-0? You know, how is it you think about things when you're 3-0 compared to when you're 0-0 in round one? You know, what's what's going on there? Is it about the cards or is it about, you know, how you're thinking the decisions you're making? And, you know, that's something to, to think about and to, to take observation of. And so I really love that idea of discipline intent and really the way you put words to it. So, um, yeah, it's, I have a lot, lot to say about that. I don't know what you may know if you want to jump in. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. I, I like sort of what you both said about it. Um, I think it is something that is like, I think Abe called it resting rate once. Sort of like, what's it like when I'm playing? Um, I mean, basically just another word like your B game per his description a second ago, which is how I've always thought of it. I never heard of the ABC game before, which is pretty interesting. Um, specifically the C one, where it's like, when you are getting emotional, whatever, or like frustrated or things aren't going your way, how's it going? But regardless, um, I, I think it's really uh, like a really good sort of moment and thing to work on. And I think it is really important to kind of be doing what you're doing. I'm glad you're kind of on that journey and working on getting those sort of things and trying to like play magic more engaged, if that makes sense. Um, and less just like, I am playing magic to play magic because one of the best ways to have fun, but one of the worst ways to improve, I think is just to play to play, you know? And so I think you can come to a lot of wrong conclusions. If you just, you're playing to play and not really looking at the games, you're like, Oh yeah, one, like three games in a row. Like that matchup so easy. You know, it's like, well, why is that matchup easy? You know, I'm like, Oh, I don't know. We're like, maybe it's not. So like, I think that stuff's really good. And I'm glad you took the time to talk to us about it. I think it's something that's very important for listeners to kind of internalize what you two said. And if you feel like that's something that you're struggling with, then you should try to tackle this problem as well. Abe, you are last up here. Let's talk about reassembling a depth in a range. Yeah, so I think it's kind of fitting that, uh, you know, we didn't pull behind the curtain. We didn't like talk necessarily about what we were going to bring to the table for this, but I feel like having just heard yours, mine actually really... It's funny, we're all kind of working on the same stuff. Crazy that improving at Magic is kind of a continuous process um, that has a lot of the same elements. So yeah, like you said, Spencer, what I've been working on recently um, has been kind of reestablishing my range, especially in Modern and Pioneer, like Modern being the RCQ format and Pioneer being the format for the upcoming RC and uh, and Pro Tour that I'm qualified for. Um, and really kind of approaching both formats, which are very broad formats that are, you know, have a lot going on in them um, from a vantage of like trying to be more intentional about playing to learn. Uh, I mean, I already have a pretty strong foundation. And I say it a lot, like I have a strong foundation. Mason brought up resting rate, something we talked about like early on and kind of, you know, hang out in discord calls and talking about magic together was like, how good do you think you would be able to, like, how well do you think you'd be able to pick up a standard deck in a random standard format you've never played before after not playing for, like, three months? And how well do you think you do? How accurate do you think you'd be with your decisions? Things like that. And I think I have a very strong foundation and resting rate because I've played a lot of Magic over the years and thought about a lot of situations really critically. And thanks to the powers of lateral thinking, um, I think I come in pretty strong in in most scenarios. Um, You know, I have a really good grasp of theory, and, and that helps. So why is it that I would try to spend then more time, you know, rather than uh, honing on, you know, decks I actually want to play into kind of establishing range and depth across multiple um, decks in the format. And there's a couple of reasons behind that. So one, 
is that uh like i have the strong foundation but that means that because of just how marginal returns work i'm not going to get as much out of playing like this modern season i played like two or three leagues of scam and watched some some vods of uh like dingo playing some challenges or you know caught some ginger streams here and there uh to like get a sense for it and see it but then i put all of my time into fringe decks and and other ideas and concepts um because those are where i'm going to get the most return on things i don't already know right i'm playing to learn things and i'm going to learn the most in the first you know 10 to 15 matches of the deck i'm going to understand the most uh and see the biggest picture from that compared to you know, the 50th to 100th matches with the deck. Um, and so really, given the limited time I have to play Magic Online these days, uh, it's been my my way of doing that. Um, and really, when I'm picking up one of these new decks, it's because I want to learn, uh, like, a few things about about them. It's like, one, what kind of hands should I be keeping or should my opponents when they're playing back be keeping? Um, this is really important. When I spent time recently playing Yawgmoth a bunch was, uh, you know, I played, like, I think like 20 or 25 matches of Yawgmoth. And I was like, okay, I now understand kind of what kind of payoff hands they can and can't keep. What are the cards they're looking to draw in situations? You know, what plans work well and what kinds of matchups and, and what's the way that things actually slot up? Like, it's one thing to think about in theory of like, okay, my sideboard plan looks like this, but then actually seeing it play out and, and trying to do it yourself, I think is a really good perspective. Um, you know, what are this deck's strengths and weaknesses? Um you know, scales was a good example of that, of like trying to figure out what's going on here as far as why is this deck strong right now um, when it looks like on paper it shouldn't really be and, and how is it overcoming its inherent weaknesses um, and why should I play, right, like some of these front decks or some of these concepts, like why would I play this deck? Why would I choose to play this deck, especially in the modern format where there's a lot of powerful decks you can play? Um, like what is it exploiting and what, you know, and thinking about it in terms of rules of engagement, what is it that, the deck that I'm trying to learn more about telling me about what the rules of engagement of the format are, right? For a deck to be successful in the first place, a deck like, um, you know, Tribal Zoo has had, uh, like Tribal Flame Zoo has had a really good um, showing in some some online tournaments recently. Um, I know it's had really good success locally to me. And so it's like, okay, why is that? What is the what is going on in the format that's making that happen? Answering questions like that um, is a really, really big part of what i'm trying to learn by trying to expand my range and additionally understanding kind of how those things are working um just helps me be able to not only play those decks if i think they're well positioned but exploit the things that are that are going on there that make them well positioned uh with, with other decks in the format um you know another reason that i've been doing this is to kind of update my priors like i spent a lot of time in modern playing a lot of hammer time um, and then Modern's changed a lot since when I first started playing that deck. Um, you know, kind of getting back into the format. And same with Pioneer, I've played a lot of Mono Green. You know, decks that are just good and strong, some consider the best decks. But, uh, you know, the format has changed around it substantially. You know, um, in Pioneer, for example, the Arclight Phoenix deck is, you know, uh, as good as, like, some people are saying it might be the best deck in the format. It's, like, certainly being one of the most played. Or maybe it wasn't in that position, um, you know, back in five months ago in uh in dallas when i when i played green and so what has changed about matchups what has changed about how they play out um is a really important thing to know because you know we talked about how heuristics are dangerous and that's even with heuristics that are up to date 
for me, if I'm not spending time really playing the matches and understanding the heuristics, I'm going to walk into things with out-of-date heuristics. Um, and so, like, you can imagine if I'm going in there, not just not making the active, like, not thinking through all my plays or having to think through all my plays, that's going to be difficult. That's going to be a struggle on me. But if I go in not, like, with my heuristics telling me to make the wrong plays, I'm entirely set up for failure. So that's, um, you know, a big part of trying to just play, you know, some of the best decks or, you know, decks that I wouldn't even necessarily play, reg consider registering a tournament just to make sure I still have that broad range. Um, and, you know, formats change, matchups, and they're, you know, the way that people configure themselves in them change, deck lists change, plans change. Um, and theory, even though I feel like I do have a really good, like, big strength in theoretical magic um, and, and magic theory, like, it only can tell you so much about how things are when you look at things on the deck list. There really is a cap to what that can tell you compared to what you really find to be true. And if you never take the time to find what is or isn't true, or like maybe I know how the matchup plays out just by looking at the deck lists, knowing that that's the case and that that's accurate is worth so much because then I can continue on knowing it's true. Or if I find that that's not true, I can ask myself why I was wrong and figure out and update, you know, those, the same ideas. Um, and then with some of these decks, you know, just I've been spending time focus testing um, like the key matchups I'm trying to figure out or get a grasp on to kind of understand how they might cascade through the rest of the format. Um, because and like trying to figure out, OK, this deck is doing something cool or it has this advantage. Is it actually viable in the broader scope of the format? Like if you have a deck that has a terrible scam matchup, but it's good against a bunch of other things like uh, maybe Living End might be a, a good example of that uh, in some some metagames where, you know, Voidwalker and Leyland Void are kind of problems, but you might be well-positioned against other things. Is that, like, so bad that it's not a viable deck? Or, you know what, taking time to figure those things out um, and also making sure I can understand, like, what makes it that way and um, being able to better evaluate the matchups uh, in those terms, especially against decks that maybe I... Like, locally, the whole... the not talking about Travel Slam Zoo again, but the Domain Zoo deck, it uh, it was probably like half of my losses I took. I taken the scam this last like three months of RCQs this season. I think half my losses are that deck, and so I just really took time to like play some of it to understand how it loses, play against it more, and understand how to beat it. And uh, you know, even though the deck is like kind of a fringe deck, I don't need to worry about. I need to worry about my local metagame, and I really want to understand how this deck that I think is bad, why it's beating my deck. I think that I think is better. Um, and what are what's that telling me about the way I'm constructing my deck with vulnerabilities, um, and how to how to best patch those? So, um, for what it's worth, the deck also sees play in my meta game. I want I want to highlight something that you said uh, if you're if you're done, um, and well, I, I want to highlight specifically how this ties into a previous episode. We had Nathan Storon. Um, and he talked about the ability to reverse engineer hands and plays that are available to your opponent. And I think the only way that is possible is from what Abe is doing. And being able to look at my hand versus what you've done and reverse engineer what's possible from this point and doing it quickly can only happen if you're doing, if you're increasing your range, if you're you understand both sides of a matchup. If you understand 
the like the type of hands that a deck can even possibly keep. And if they had X, they probably don't have Y. If they did Z, they probably can't do A. And that that happens through this. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm glad you brought that up because something that I was thinking about when I was, you know, kind of building out what I wanted to spend my time doing as far as, you know, improving and using, you know, this opportunity to play a handful of, you know, two to four leagues with a bunch of different decks to kind of continue to build on on my range um in these formats was what Nathan said, uh, actually. Like that, that you pointed out about like you know, being able to reverse engineer your opponent's hand and knowing what they're thinking and understanding what is going on there because you can't know if you, you might be able to figure it out based on an experience of doing it one way from one side, but you'll know so much better if you've been the player in the other seat to know what they're thinking. Um, like this happens to me a lot with like the hardened scales matchups now where I know kind of what the importance of some of these cards are um, from like the scale side of what is the real threats I need to spend my ballistic counters on and what do I not, or, or how am I going to end this game? And, to me, and it's like understanding your opponent's heuristics and that this, their sequencing, right? Like could gives you a lot of information. Uh, Mason, I know you want to say something. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that like you, you two both brought up that I, I think is really important is like you're saying from the playing of the decks to understand where the player is coming from like what with abe saying here like he understands what the ballistas should be shooting and like if it's not shooting that maybe that means they have some different answer or vice versa like abe now knows like hey wow like uh patrick automaton is a huge problem you know normally i might do something different or probably not prioritize getting this extra man off this ragavan but i know i kind of needed to pay the war two for patches and stuff like that comes up a lot and i i think the thing and i think that's all really important one of the things that really jumped up to me about what Abe was talking about was specifically as I look at his notes here uh, was kind of like what plans are performing well and what plans are performing poorly. Right. And I really like kind of going in there and being like, okay, I have this strong kind of base foundation of magic and sort of like this strong uh, theoretical understanding. And that stuff is really good. It can get you a lot of the way, but I do need to make sure that the games are actually playing out that way. And can I consistently allow for it to play that right that way? Right. Because I think we can all test it here. We have some thought about, hey, we're going to make the matchup play this way. We're going to marinate the game back and forth. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try and make this happen. And then you try and do it. And it's just a little too awkward. You know, it's like a little too man intensive. It requires a little bit more than you thought it would. And you're like, oh, I thought this was going to be an easy thing to have happen. And in reality, it wasn't. You know, and that is a real truth of sort of playing the game. And so I think going back in there and kind of like, updating your priors, expanding your range sort of, et cetera, is really important. And kind of earlier to Spencer's point, right? I think a thing uh, to talk, when Spencer talked about, um, you know, if you feel like you're a ramp or if you feel like you're an X player, right? Like if you identify as one type of player, I imagine you are probably there because you win a lot when you play those decks because you put a lot of work into those things and you have a lot of, you know, heuristics understanding how those games play and it's a self-fulfilling cycle, right? Like RCQ season comes around, right? I'm ramp guy, you know, then it's like, okay, it's standard season. What deck am I going to play? I'm going to play ramp because I'm ramp guy, you know, and it's like, that's what happens. And if ramp's good, then you're in a really good spot. And maybe you can even win on ramps, you know, just fine. But, you know, it will hurt you long term if you box yourself in. And so while you might go and compete at the RCQ playing the ramp deck, because it's your best deck to win, you can be at home doing what Abe's doing and playing 
Esper and Soldiers and Mono Red and trying to expand that range. And no one's saying that, you know, uh, like, hey, you've got to do what Abe's doing at tournaments too, you know? Like, I don't think Abe's out here going like, all right, it's Lutri time at the RCQ, you know? Uh, and he, like, queues up the Lutri deck uh, with his weekend event. Like, he is spending the time at home practicing those things. Then when he goes to the event, he plays Rakdos Scam. And I, I really resonated, the last thing I'll say here is I really resonated with what Abe said about, you know, I spent two, three leagues playing Scam, and then I, you know, went and started doing all the other things, right? I sort of got my, you know, prior stuff today on Scam, felt good about these things. I wanted to see how all these other decks played, which we spent a lot of time talking about. But I really resonate with that because that's how I approach a lot of the formats where it's like I want to understand everything that's going on there, and especially four color, where you know that whole time Yorgon was legal, I played. I, I can literally tell you all my league games because I remember them because there are so few of them, you know. And I didn't play much with Yorgon on Moto, but I played a ton of Moto and I played a lot of all the other decks to get an understanding for how their deck worked, how they were feeling, so I could attack it as a control deck. And when you're a deck that has a lot of interaction understanding truly their strengths inside and out is an important part. Like Abe mentioned, you know, at the start of all this, you know, now I know what the ballista matters versus not mattering, right? And this all sort of ties together. And so I think it's a really big part of it and is underappreciated by players because players love to get their hundredth game in with a deck. And there are seriously diminishing returns. I would say this, like differing levels of play skill, you're gonna have different, you know, amounts of knowledge or something, but I find it hard to believe the hundredth and first game is really like that has to be the point of tipping for 99% of players, especially if you found our constructed podcast on, you know, Spotify or whatever. If you're seeking this stuff out, I doubt you're at the spot where, you know, your 200th game of soldiers is really telling you a lot. Yeah. And I really love that you touched on, touched on that as far as like, you know, I'm not using that range to, uh, like, the range I'm trying to build to necessarily be able to like switch decks every week or, you know, just to enjoy playing of decks like i'm playing um a lot in this way to like go forward to put it into practice like taking it one step further as far as you know not only am i spending this time to understand these decks be able to play them keep my back pocket but um you know i'm playing it with intent to be able to you know know what's going on in not just the best decks but you know these decks that are kind of fringe and why they're seeing success um you know what that says about the rules of engagement. Um, for example, like when I started playing Hammer, one of the big decks was the Asmo deck, right? That was like right around the start of um, of MH2 being in the format. And a big reason that deck was so good was because Urza Saga was like just one of the best cards. The amount of power put into play and it's like versatility was so good that then seeing, okay, how can we take that and put it into a different shell that works a little better? Or is that even strong right now or weak right now? Like being able to answer those questions about what the good cards are and what you can maybe learn from seeing a deck that you know is not the strongest deck in the format, right? It's it's not, especially right now in modern, it's really apparent, right? Like Rakdos Scam is just the the most played deck and, and fairly dominant and just about everywhere for a good reason. But there are still other decks that succeed. So what does that say about what's going on in the format on a format level? And what are the rules of engagement right now in the format? And how are those decks doing that right? All of that is valuable information that I'm trying to to tap into. So I can either avoid being exploited if I'm playing a deck like Rakdos Scam or exploited if I think one of those decks is in um, a good place. And, you know, kind of 
expanding onto like why it is that this is something I'm I'm working on is right like I've got a pro tour coming up. Um, it is so important at that level to be on the cutting edge and not be a week behind. Because if you're a week behind, you are going to get eaten up by the competition. I have absolutely been a week behind before my first pro tour. I was definitely a week, maybe two behind of what I should have been playing, and I felt it. My deck was not good um, compared to my second pro tour. Where I felt like my deck was like one of the best decks for the tournament, and I felt really good about my constructed rounds. Um, and you know, especially for formats like Pioneer and Modern, where only so much can change because they're non-rotating. Like, having the ability to feel comfortable playing with a bunch of these decks and also, like, identify the opportunities for them is going to be really important for that process for me for this Pro Tour. Um, and also, you know, as we're going back into Seasonal Magic and I have less time than I used to, kind of back in the idea of resting rate, like, having this strong foundation of range now means that when we come back around to Pioneer Season or to Modern Season... Or even like, you know, once I'm doing this with standard and then we're coming back around to standard season, I'll have hopefully a good picture of where things are and where they're at, or at least a, a closer snapshot of what I'm looking at than, than where I was. And so that's uh, that's kind of like the the big picture of why it is that this is what I've, I've been working on and how it's like can be so much more useful to you, especially where like lateral thinking is the most important thing of, of my process. Like without the ability to do that, I'm not sure that following a process like this will work for you, um, which is why I'm always so big on talking about how developing that skill is really, really valuable. Um, but, right, like leveraging all this information and, and sliding it around to to make a bigger picture is is really like the the goal behind what, I, what I've been doing. So I don't know if you guys have any last thoughts, but that's that's my always improving this week. Love it. Uh, if you want to join the show, one of the best ways to do that is to head over to the Patreon. You can ask the Patreon questions, or if you're part of the Discord, Joshua asks, with the RC in Atlanta be my fourth RC and not top 48ing any of the previous three, how should I view the results of this tournament if I don't queue for the PT? While, uh, while not being results-oriented, uh, but at some point, not finishing four RCs in a row does say something, or am I way off? Um, yeah, I think that that's just results oriented thinking for what it's worth. Um, I I could probably speak for all of us. We probably all did a lot of PPQs, RCQs, PPDQs before we finished and went to the Pro Tour. Um, I, I got, I top eight it. I think it was my, my second PTQ. Didn't top eight another PTQ for a little bit. Um, it just, it just happens. Like, uh, there, there is, there's so much that goes into a given tournament. When you think about like the regional championships rather than like even just the old school PTQ system, I think there's a level of, this is more like trying to, like, it's like your one shot to catch a GP almost, uh, in order to make a pro tour. If like, if you could only make pro tours from GPs back in the day, it's kind of how I think of this. Um, it's it's hard. It's like it's it's hard for like a lot of different reasons, 
and you don't know which knob to turn for the reason that it didn't work out, right? And so to me, it's about like adjusting like, okay, some self-reflection, what knob can I adjust that I think that I could have done better on and going into the next one with that while trying to maintain the other things, right? And if you're shifting all these knobs at once, right? Which is something that I did after. I remember, um, I mean, I lost like <clears throat> three like um, PDU, uh, PDU top eights in a row, like in a row at one point. And I was like, okay, I'm just gonna shift my entire magic game. Like I'm gonna completely change like how I test, who I test with, what I'm thinking, the decks that I've like, I just shifted everything. I didn't, I think I missed a whole year of PDU top eights when I did that. And you just, you just have to, to be realistic and understand that there are things outside of your control and focus on the things that you can control. That's, that's my answer to this question. Uh, Mason. Hey, Abe, I got a question for you here. If you want to tag team this one with me, how many RCQs have you played this season? How many RCQs have I played this season? Yeah. Uh, I think six or seven. Six or seven without a win in a row? It's got to say something where my way off. You know what I mean? That To me, it's like winning an RCQ is like much, uh, it's around the same thing, right? Like it, it's all the same. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, if you lost four RCQs or whatever, you, I, I don't think you would. Maybe you would, Joshua. You don't think you'd be like, yeah, you know, even let's say eight RCQs. Like, yeah, I've lost eight of them, you know? Like, I got to say something, right? Like, they're just sample sizes. And these things feel bigger uh, because they are bigger and you put a lot of importance, you put a lot of weight, and you spend a lot of money to travel to these things. And you dedicate your weekends and you take time off work and you practice with your friends after work, you know, and of all these the commitments. And... I'm not saying it's not a big deal. It's not happening. I'm more just saying you have taken a very small number of shots at this very small number of people who actually make it. Uh, and I think you're being a little too hard on yourself. Worth noting, it is only top 32 as of this next RC. There's, it's no longer 48. There's only 32 invites to the United States, which does make it harder. But like, you know, even at 48 or whatever, I think the average RC was just about over a thousand people, right? Like the first one was a little bit smaller, I think. And then like California was like 1300. And then it was like 1100 for Dallas. So I guess it's even a little higher than I'm saying. That is like a very small portion of the room who actually gets pro tour invites and lots of great players miss pro tour invites, right? I, I don't think Mike Sigris qualified for any of the pro tours via the RC or whatever this past year, you know, and Mike Sigris is a great player. Right. He is really, really strong. You know, if someone told me I have Mike Sigris play for my life for a random person, I'm taking Siggy. You know, I'm not taking the random person. And Former so player of the year, Mike Sigrist. Yeah. Yeah. Player of the year. Incredibly strong, limited. If it's limited, prime from my hands, you know, and, and stop it. I won't take three rerolls. You know what I mean? And so, like, this is a thing where it's just, I think you're being really hard. And I think you are, like Spitzel said, you're being results oriented. I, I understand that it's hard to not be result-oriented in the thing that only really pays off the top. And in some ways, I wish more people got RC invites from, like, day twoing or something. I wish there was, like, a point-ish system, but that's not the world we live in. And so I don't really – I try not to think about things that aren't the world we live in. And so, regardless um, – well, I should say I try not to fixate on things that aren't in the world we live in. And so I, I think it's just important to be like, listen, if you don't make up this fourth one, 
instead of being like, does this say something about me as a player? It should probably say something about, hey, what does this mean as the process? And is this something that I'm okay with doing? Because magic is a marathon, not a race. 90, like most people don't get there. You know, they just do not make it there. A lot of people will play at least one pro tour and they compete long enough, they will get there, right? But to really do it, if you really want to compete a lot, you need to be okay with failure because magic tournaments pump out losers, not winner. Only one person wins, right? And so you need to be focused on improving, getting better, and moving forward, kind of like the point of the show. If you're not getting better, what are you doing? We need to work on those things. So that would be my answer. Yeah, I really love everything you guys said. I think the only thing I would add or, or rephrase is like, if you do not qualify in your fourth RC, you know, like the question you should ask yourself is, you know, it, it does say something, which is that you didn't, you didn't do it right. But the question you need to ask yourself is, what is that thing? What is that something that it's saying? You know, are you happy with how you prepared for those tournaments? Are you happy with how you felt playing those matches? Are you happy with the the results of the process that you put in place? Right, not in the sense of you know, I got 33rd place, so now I don't go to the Pro Tour and I'm unhappy. I think that'd be hard to say, like, if you got 33rd on tiebreakers, the process you followed was probably pretty good. You know, you're going to beat out over a thousand people to get that finish, right? A thousand people who also put in time and effort and, you know, took time to travel there and wanted to win and, you know, came in to play all these matches, won their own RCQs, qualified on their own means. But are you happy with how you got to that 33rd place? You know, like if you if you played the tournament and all of your opponents mulligan to four every round and you top 32'd, would you be happy with that result? Like that honestly matters so much more than what qualification you come out with at the end of it or, or what prize you earn um, is knowing are you happy or not with how things happened and then identifying, okay, if I'm not happy or what I'm not happy with um, in terms of like, right, these last, I haven't seen improvement out of these last RCs. I haven't felt good about the decks I've chosen or, you know, the games I've played, whatever it is, use that as feedback um, rather than saying, you know, am I doing everything wrong? Should I just give up? Is like, okay, what of what I'm doing is working and not? So you can use it as feedback to really target where you want to improve. Um, that's that's what I would say. I, th I think you are way off about it saying saying something in the way that you're implying, but you're not at all way off in it saying something. It's just you need to make sure you're identifying what that is correctly. I would have got 33rd, by the way. Like, like, Sorry, I got 33rd last year in Atlanta. So if I were to repeat my performance, which was a very good performance, I would miss the Pro Tour. I ended up drawing the last round, but you know, like, I would obviously not be able to draw in that spot. Um, yeah, I got 48. Yeah, yeah. So Abe and I both like, you know, that cusp and like the new cusp, like it, it's there and it's hard to do. So, no, no shame in it either. Yeah, I just want to, I want to jump in Abe, on something that you said. I was coaching a player for the RC in um, San Diego, and they lost a double win in, um, and it was it like, you know, we hugged and like, you know, I, I. I cheered them on and stuff and it was a hard loss but you know during the coaching process and and afterwards did you understand the format yes did you play the right deck do you feel like you played the right deck yes were you happy with your play yes 
did you, you know, would you, would you change anything? No. Was it a successful tournament? And they ended up saying yes. Like they, they were happy with where they ended up, how they ended up. You know, you sometimes, sometimes things don't break your way. Right. And, um, I think that it, if you're focusing on the right things, like Abe said, and the things that you can control, um, it won't matter what the result is. It will matter to you personally if you put your best foot forward um, and can be can can stand on your what you did and what you believed in going into the event. So, yeah, results don't matter. I love what you said there, Spencer. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can join the Patreon Discord by becoming a patron of $5 or more. You can join the public Discord. Uh, I haven't checked yet. We got a Fantasy Football League for He's the Game Media going on. I'm in a tight one right now. Uh, so, well, you know, after this, maybe I'll, I'll check that. Um, we also talked about things like, you know, everything in your culture, Souls of Magic, uh, the, the aspiring spike uh, <laughs> invisible stalker screenshot made multiple Discords today for me. That was too funny. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you can also leave a YouTube comment. We didn't have a YouTube comment this week. Um, but I, I will say that we, we got a couple of them. Of people that were like, oh, I can't believe I just learned of this podcast for the first time or listened to this episode for this time. We love those comments. And they actually do drive engagement and they help the show a lot. Um, but I, I just want to say, like, I, I was sending these guys some some podcast numbers this week. And just the the growth in the show of people sharing it and people talking about it and things like that has been really evident the last 90 days. Um, and we really appreciate it. It's, it does not go unnoticed. And I just want to call that out. Um, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at CCMTG. Um, and you can check out drafting archetypes every week at constructivecriticism.com. The best ways to support the show are always to like subscribe, review and comment. Where can people find you, Abe? Uh, you can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. Uh, DMs are open for coaching if you're looking for uh, for someone who isn't Mason, someone who's less handsome uh, and less tall. Dude, I was going to say, Mason's beard looks really good today. Like, if you're watching the podcast, I don't know if it's the lighting. Did you just trim that? It looks fresh. It, looked it, like... it looks really what? Really handsome? Really good? Really bad? Really bad. No. Really oh, no. bad. You lagged out you right broke, then. You broke up. You, you broke up. <laughs> oh, I broke up? <laughs> yeah, you were like, Mason's beard looks... And then it, I was like, I say really, I yeah. said really fresh. That's so funny. That, thank you. Thank you. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. you said, Mason's beard looks really... And then roundabout started <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so really I was I could still say, the listeners could still hear me for what it's worth. So uh, that's funny. Yeah. Mason, where did you find you? Uh, you can find me over at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. You can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. You can reach out to me for coaching there or via my email, Mason E. Clark at gmail.com. Put coaching in the description. That way I know you're not spam. Or if you are spam, you're getting me a little bit better that way. I click on it. Uh <laughs> Uh, and that's where you can find me, Spencer, where people find you. You can find me at Heasy Game on Twitter. I did open my DMs and uh, notice some some coaching opportunities. I really appreciate people reaching out, especially during this time for me. 
Um, and uh, yeah, you can find me on the Need to Nerd podcast, a pro- podcast. We did Cobra Kai season four. We're doing Witcher season one next week. It's a really fun show. Um, and then tomorrow I'm recording a really cool tips and tricks episode of Smash Bros. Ultimate on Smash Through, the always improving podcast about Smash Bros. Ultimate. Um, what did we learn on the show this week? I'll go first. I um, I think that uh, my biggest learning was, I, I had heard, I think it was because Mason wasn't on the episode where we talked about A game, B game, and C game. I think he was out when we did that, Abe. But you reiterated it this week, and it made me think more about my B game and things that I can do to improve there to lift as well. So that was that was really interesting to me. What about you, Mason? Yeah, I mean, mine. I, I mentioned it a little bit in passing earlier about the ABC with A, but specifically the idea of the C game. Um, I mean, what I tell people a lot in Magic and in coaching is that like when you are tilting, it is good to like push those feelings down on the side and the rest of your life to be mad at yourself for that misplay that you made and not to really worry about it. And, you know, for some people that's easier than others. Um, and just the idea of that is really interesting. It makes me kind of want to investigate some of that literature just to sort of see what other people have said about it. Uh, but that, that was my biggest one. Hey, what about you? Uh, yeah. So mine was actually thinking a little bit about like more about what you had talked about Mason in terms of like, kind of the the whole thing about heuristics and um you know the value of them as tools to offload your thinking but um something i didn't get a chance to say that i kind of thought of while i was thinking about while spencer was talking about his his topic sorry to to cut into that time you had spencer but um is the same idea of like deviation from like the correct or like optimal thing being how you know, in poker, it is that you wind up capturing advantage or like the idea of like wins above replacement as a stat in baseball of like how you evaluate players who are good in their position being how much more than like a replacement level player are they and how that really applies to magic and how they're deviating from heuristics and being able to perform better than what is just the, you know, competent player number, like number 45 steps onto the step, steps into your match sits down at the table across from you and, and plays that game or sits down in that same seat as you and plays the same cards, how much more often than them are you winning um, and, and how deviating heuristics can really help that. The Rudy, the Rudy Gobert uh, plus minus stat, as some would say. So, yeah, I love it. Exactly. I love it. Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a fun topic. That's a, that's a bonus episode topic. If ever I've heard one for what it's worth. Speaking of get your Patreon questions in, or a mailbag episode. We have enough to, to do one this month. So if you want to hear yours heard on the show, uh, please make sure to get those in. Thank you everybody so much for listening. I really loved this episode. I want to give a shout out to Mason for suggesting it on a week that we had to find a replacement topic. Um, Mason, it was great and we appreciate it. And we'll see everybody next week on another episode of Constructed Criticism. <laughs>